This is Let's Talk About from Style Canada. And let me tell you, we're talking. Let's face it, we talk a lot. We talk about things we love, hot topics, and anything in between. But what about the things we don't talk about? What about the things we want to know but don't know how to ask? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Let's expand our horizons. Let's talk about it. Hi, all, and welcome. This week, we're talking about pride with Brad Fraser. Brad is one of Canada's best-known playwrights. Born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1959, Brad won his first playwright writing competition at the age of 17 and has been writing ever since. Brad's international hit play, Unidentified Human Remains and the True Nature of Love, premiered at the Alberta Theatre Project's Playwrights Festival in 1989. It has since been produced worldwide in many languages with highly successful runs in Toronto, New York, Chicago, Milan, Sydney, and London. Poor Superman, developed by Canadian Stage, was first produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Cincinnati in 1994 and has enjoyed successful runs in many cities, including Toronto, London, Sydney, Edinburgh, and Denver. It was nominated for a Governor General's Literary Award for Drama and adapted into a feature film, Leaving Metropolis, written and directed by Brad. Poor Superman, like Unidentified Human Remains, was listed by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 plays of its year. Many other plays have followed in successful productions. Brad has also written extensively for magazines and newspapers, including the Globe and Mail and the National Post, and for three seasons as a writer and producer on Showtime's Queer as Folk. Brad, thank you so much for being here with us today, and happy Pride. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, a lot of amazing, amazing works in there and accomplishments. Can we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. I grew up in, uh, uh, well, all over rural Alberta and northern BC as a child because my father worked road construction. So I went to a great many schools in the first three years of of my schooling. I come from a background of poverty and uh, various kinds of abuse. And I was uh, not doing very well when I was in high school. I was flanking out. I was an indifferent student. And one day I went and saw a play a friend of mine was doing at a high school for the performing arts in Edmonton and saw the play and went, oh, my God, this is what I need to be doing. And I transferred out of my academic school. I went to the school for the performing arts. And while I was there, I I was studying to be an actor. Ostensibly, I wanted to be an actor. But uh, in reading the plays they had for young people, I was like, these are terrible. I can write better plays than this. And I wrote one uh, when I was uh, 17 and I won the Alberta Culture Playwriting Competition Student Division. And they sent me to the BAMP Center for the Fine Arts to take part in the Playwrights Colony. And I met uh, a lot of playwrights of the day. We're talking about the late 70s, so there wasn't yet a lot of theatre in Canada. It was just really starting to come up. But through those contacts, I I met other people. I had my first play produced at Walterdale Theatre when I was 21. I had my first professional production uh, of a play called Wolf Boy that was done uh, in a lot of uh, theatres in the country, and most famously in Toronto with Keanu Reeves starring with it in 1984, where it was a huge bomb. Oh, and uh, and kind of it's a kept cool going story, through. though. Oh, it is a cool story. And he was a really sweet kid. I think it was maybe his first job he had ever had. The production wasn't very good, but that certainly wasn't Keanu or any of the other actors' faults. It was mostly the fault of the playwright, to be honest with you, because I was very young and not quite sure what I was doing yet at the time. 
but that got me some notoriety and I, I did a couple of other plays, but it wasn't until 1989 when Unidentified Human Remains and the True Nature of Love opened in Calgary that things really took off for me. And since then, I've been basically working my entire life. Wow. I mean, such a journey and so many accomplishments in there. So is it fair to say, I mean, to discover that at 17, that that was your passion, is it fair to say that creativity became like an outlet for you? Creativity was always an outlet for me. I, I don't just write. I also draw. I paint. I do a lot of crafty kind of stuff. I like to build things. I like to do things with my hands. And for me as a child, that was where I found my refuge. That was where... Uh, I felt safest and I felt like uh, I wasn't being threatened. So the idea of working, you know, when I work creatively, it doesn't matter what, I, what I'm doing, if I'm writing or painting or acting or whatever it is, directing. I mean, I do go into a kind of different state. My creative brain takes over and all of the stress and all of the things I might be carrying around with me become much less important and much less urgent when I'm doing something creative. Mm -hmm. So yes, to answer your question, it was a huge outlet for me and it allowed me to take what could have been a lot of very negative things from my life and kind of turn them around and make them into uh, more positive things that, uh, that I could use in my art. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about you discovered that outlet at 17, can you take us through your journey of coming out? Did that happen around the same time? Was that many years before or later? What did that look like? No, that was about the same time. I mean, for one thing, I went from being at a very redneck school to being at a school for the performing arts, where even in the late 80s, there were a couple of gay students and bi students and that kind of thing. And coming out for me was gradual, I think, as it was for a lot of people of my generation. I mean, initially, I was dating women and having relationships with women and called myself bisexual. And I suppose to some degree could still be considered bisexual, but that's politically, at least, I... Um, I wanted to be gay. I wanted to be different, to be quite honest with you. I felt like when I uh, started going to the gay bar in Edmonton, there was two at the time. I was uh, going to say you said the bar. So there was obviously only yeah. one or two. <laughs> well, there was one young, cool one called Flashback and one that kind of catered to an older crowd. So when we were young, Flashback was the only bar. But of course, as we got older, we all moved over to the other bar as well. But um, again, I, I felt like I found a refuge. I felt like I found a place where there were other people like me and where I felt where I felt safe. And then I didn't really ever come out. I just lived my life and let people think whatever they want to. And for a number of years, the Canadian press wouldn't even ask me if I was gay. They, they just kind of tiptoed around it. And then finally, a writer in Edmonton, when writing about me one day, said, Brad Fraser, who has never made a secret of the fact he is gay, blah, blah, blah. And everybody who read it kind of went, even if they didn't know I was gay at the time, kind of went, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense. So it all kind of happened gradually, you know, people around me, my family, that kind of thing, they figured it out, but I didn't feel like I had to make an announcement. I didn't feel like straight people don't have to tell everyone they're straight. Why do gay right. people have to tell people they're gay? I'll just be gay and they can figure it out. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, you know, I just think growing up when I did still you, there was almost people, I think felt like they had to make that announcement. I, sh I don't want to speak for them, but I feel like I had maybe 
more friends kind of make those announcements or declarations. But now I see like my friend's kids that are growing up and it, it almost doesn't seem like that declaration or that coming out is going to have to be made because you, maybe there's more of an awareness. Maybe there's more conversations had, but you can kind of just see that this is how some kids are living, you know, going to, going to live their lives. And you see it from an earlier age, at least maybe also when I say seeing it from an earlier age, it's because now I'm at an older age myself that I'm able to observe that. Um, than I could when I was in that peer group. But is that fair to say that maybe kids hopefully won't have to have that coming out moment because we'll all just be more accepting of this? Yeah, you know, in my generation, there was this kind of crazy idea that you couldn't become gay till you were over 18, when in fact, gay kids and teens, even in my time, knew that we were different and knew that we were, we didn't maybe have the same language or vocabulary that the young people do now. And uh, it was meant to be a secret. You weren't supposed to tell anyone. It was a very brave thing to do when you finally did. So I think now that um, parents are more attuned to these things and some parents are more accepting of these things so that they do start to recognize at a younger age that my child is sexually non-conforming in some way, whatever that might be. So um, the child is aware of it and doesn't have to hide it and has actually people that they can speak to about it, which we certainly didn't have uh, when, when I was coming out. So yes, I think that the idea of coming out if, if it exists anymore, is kind of something that happens in your mid-teens uh, when, when you start to manifest puberty, when you start to have sexual feelings, that, uh, that young people now are more attuned to that, they have a vocabulary to discuss it, and their parents are, are hopefully more accepting and more open to it, you know. So it is, a, it is a very different thing in the same way that we don't really have gay villages anymore, we, we, we hardly have gay bars anymore because, uh, you know, uh, again, when I was young, we, we came together in places where we could create families and environments where we were uh, not under threat from anybody. So that right. we ended up in the Church Wellesley area or downtown. I lived Edmonton in that area for or, a little bit. Yeah. That was a great area. I lived in that area for a little bit in Toronto. Exactly. But it doesn't have that... Um, that feeling anymore because for one thing young people now go out with their straight friends they aren't ghettoized in the same way and told to go over there and be gay where we don't have to look at you but they can go out to clubs with their boyfriends or their girlfriends or whatever and dance together and do that kind of thing so even the idea of of a a a gay bar is really falling out of the way and also you know gay bars used to be where gay men and lesbians met one another to interface sexually or romantically or whatever it was and the computer has kind of taken over that now as well and in some ways i don't think that's a better thing i think there's something to be said for being in a large group and having the diversity of people around and being forced to um to look at other people who may not meet your sexual or intimate criteria immediately, to look at them in another way and, and get to know them in another another environment and another way of dealing with one another, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think, so when you had, you know, going back a, a step to when you had that reporter kind of make this, this statement, did you feel a freedom with that or no, because in your mind you had been living your life anyway. It didn't really make any difference to me. It, it, okay. it really didn't. I mean, it was, you know, now relatives, you know, distant relatives and that kind of thing knew I was gay who didn't know I was gay, but I never really cared. 
you know, and, and I never really felt like I had to conceal who I was. I was very proud of who I was and what I had done and all of the complexities that come with being me. Since the start of the pandemic, many Canadians have put aside their health and procrastinated going to the doctors. Our health concerns should never have to wait. With Maple, no matter where you are, you can access a physician or healthcare specialist. Maple is a credible virtual care platform with over 200,000 five-star reviews that's providing access to 1,500 general practitioners and specialists coast-to-coast. They work with Canadian licensed healthcare professionals to get Canadians timely access to quality care from their smartphones, tablets, or computers, anytime, anywhere. In fact, 2 million Canadians are already using Maple. Head to getmaple.ca backslash style for more information and don't put your health on pause. So, um, yes, you know, there were there were points where I was marginalized like everyone else, where I dealt with bigotry and that kind of thing, but not nearly as much as some people I knew, because for one thing, the world I work in is a fairly tolerant world. I mean, the Canadian theater at that time was not at like a bastion for homosexuals or something. There was still a lot of, of homophobia and marginalization, but not to the same degree there are in many other industries. So I had sort of sought out the place where I felt I would be safest and most accepted for who I was and, and pretty much stayed there. Mm-hmm. And so it's something just hitting me, as you say, you know, you found this community within theater, you found this community geographically in neighborhoods. Was that out of necessity that you had to find these kind of safe havens or was it just the people that you enjoyed the company of as well? Was there no, some fear it, there? I think it was out of necessity. I mean, yeah, I think I needed to thrive. I needed to be someplace where I felt like I could be myself. And, you know, I had corporate jobs and I had sales jobs and I had other jobs in my 20s where I didn't feel that same kind of of comfort or safety. So, you know, I felt like the world I wanted to live in not only needed to be safe for me, but it had to be more interesting than the sort of everyday workaday world that I was that I was working in at the time, because that had no interest for me at all. And it didn't feed me in any way. You know, when I when I work creatively, I get a lot in return from the process, from the people I'm collaborating with, from all of that kind of thing. And so the the real world, if you will, or whatever we want to call it, the uh, the sort of nine to five world was not for me. And even when I needed to make money, eventually I started working in restaurants as a waiter, where again, there are a lot of queer people, there are a lot of artists, there are a lot of interesting people. And that world for me was almost as uh, sustaining as the creative world was. I really enjoyed that work. I liked working with the people I worked with and I liked giving people what they wanted, helping them have have the best experience they could possibly have while they were dining out. Mm-hmm. I love that. You seem passionate about whatever you're doing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a pretty passionate guy and I don't like to do stuff unless I really feel a need to do it, unless something inside of me is saying, you've got to do this. Right. So you're obviously in this community in the 80s. The AIDS epidemic is happening at the same time. Can you can you talk to us through a little bit of what that kind of personal experience was like? 
Uh, well, it was really, you know, I had really just come out a couple of years before and, and had gone into that world and discovered the sex. And there's a lot of the, the, uh, stuff about this in the book as well. And that kind of casual camaraderie that went on between gay men at the time and the great deal of sex we were having and how fun that was because we didn't have to worry about getting anyone pregnant or anything like that. So it could be very recreational. And then all of a sudden... You know, I remember reading an article in Omni magazine, just a little a little squib of an article in a in a sort of page full of articles saying there was some kind of strange gay cancer attacking men in New York and thinking, wow, that's that's really weird. But it's in New York and there aren't very many people. I'm not going to worry about that. And then we started to see more little headlines, little buried news stories about weird things happening in the gay community. And then about 1983, in Canada anyway, uh, in Toronto, they realized men were getting sick and they were being infected with something and they didn't know what it was. And, and there was this horrible feeling of, you know, not only are we being marginalized and persecuted, but now we're getting sick as well. And the rest of the world doesn't care. And so for me, as um, the AIDS epidemic grew and more people started to be infected and started to get sick, I mean, I went through periods of intense rage at the indifference from the rest of the world with what was happening. You know, I mean, like 12 people got Legionnaire's disease in Chicago in 1980, and they shut the whole city down and tried desperately to find out what was going on. You know, at that point, hundreds, if not thousands of people were getting sick of gay men, particularly, but also other marginalized people were getting sick. And the world wasn't doing anything. They weren't even writing about it. There was this idea that hmm. we deserved whatever was happening to us because we were perverts or whatever was going on. So it was a very um, eye-opening uh, experience for me. And then when people started to die in the mid eighties, and, and it was like this, you know, it's sort of like you see a distant fire and you can see the smoke from it. And then you realize it's getting closer and closer and it's sort of consuming people around you. And it became this very, uh, by the late 80s, it became this very nihilistic, uh, very hopeless kind of situation. It was discovered that every, basically almost everybody who was infected would get sick and die. Very few people were spared. Although I do, do have to say, I do know uh, a number of long-term HIV and AIDS survivors now who are, you know, 30 years later still kicking around. But the biggest majority of people got very sick and died. So by the time I was 29, 30 years old, when Remains was opening, I already felt like I'd been through a war. I had already lost almost everybody I knew in certain cases, in certain groups of people. Like there were scores of men dying and everywhere you turned around, it was just another story about so-and-so was sick or so-and-so was in the hospital or this person was dying. And it wasn't till the early 90s, the rest of the world started to wake up to it and started to go, what's going on? And, you know, we had to mobilize as a community. I mean, we had to learn how to take care of ourselves. We had to learn how to educate ourselves. And we were very lucky that there were the early AIDS groups and the, and the early people who were dealing with this, who were getting the word out there and, and preaching safe sex and giving out condoms and educating people because there was none of that coming from the general public. So it was very much a horrible, horrible experience. But at the same time, 
It was where the queer community as a whole, and I mean trans people, lesbians, straight allies, I know many women and a few men, uh, straight men who, who, who helped with the, with the AIDS epidemic, who looked out for people, who volunteered to help for people, that, that we gained our power as a community through the AIDS crisis. And if we hadn't done the things uh, that we did politically then, for example, we never would have got gay marriage. That never would have happened because we never really had the uh, the attention or the resolve to do that kind of thing. But after fighting all of those battles, those of us who survived kind of went, yeah, we deserve the same rights as everybody else. And the two things are very connected. Hmm. It's interesting how, I mean, it's, it is human behavior in times of turmoil, it brings people together. Right. And, mm-hmm. and such a strong community created from that you touched on and thank you for sharing that story because I've never actually had I have many gay and, and queer friends and I've never we haven't none of us would have lived through that so I've never heard it from a personal perspective so I appreciate you sharing that well thank you you know um, that's part of my reason for writing the book I was just going to ask you so go ahead and tell us about the book yeah it's because I do meet so many young people now who have no idea of what went on or what we went through, who, who don't know that doctors and nurses refused to treat people with AIDS. They would leave their food and their medication outside their door and refuse to go in. They would, uh, they would literally not help people. People were turned out of their homes by their families because they had AIDS. I mean, it was a very, very horrible time. And there were a lot of people who, uh, chose suicide or who died alone uncared for and without anybody to reach out to or talk to and i really think it's important especially now as we're we're in the middle of this other pandemic to realize that you know we've been through these things before certain segments of our society have been through these things before and in the same way uh, organizations like ACT UP out of New York, which was a, a, a very strong AIDS organization that wanted uh, the FDA to change the rules on testing new drugs because it took so long that people were dead before they could get the drugs tested. That when ACT UP started confronting politicians and started civil disobedient uh, uh, protests and that kind of thing to make people aware of it, that they not only changed the way that we dealt with HIV, but they changed the way we dealt with breast cancer, for example, and other kinds of cancers and other kinds of sicknesses that other groups are affected by so that women who are suffering from breast cancer could take ACT UP's uh, uh, ways of doing things and apply them to their own issues and get the same result, which is that things started to be approved quicker, experimental drugs were tried on people because, hey, they're dying anyway, and it really changed the way the medical system looks at treating pandemics and uh, individual minority groups within them. So again, on that level, AIDS was a horrible time, but it did bring about some very positive changes for many more people than just the queer community. Hmm, I didn't realize, I didn't realize the background of that. And so your book is out called All the Rage. That's right. (laughs) I love the title. Tell us about the background of the title and then tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the title comes from, I guess, two things. One is, uh, I can be a very angry man. I was raised by a very angry, abusive man, and I have to learn to keep that stuff in check. But also, I was very much the right homosexual at the right time in the late 80s and early 90s. And I had a very strong media presence. I was known across the country and around the world to the point where 
it actually bothered me that that people knew me before I ever met them and that kind of thing. And like all the rage, you know, by sort of age 40 in the year 2000, which is where the book ends, that public profile thing had had come down a lot and my life had gone in a new direction. So it's kind of a play on words about uh, the anger inside of me and how I've used that to fuel my art and also my intense popularity for a certain period of time. I love that. The book, That's is, it. You know, the book is a memoir. It's not meant to be an exhaustive autobiography. It isn't filled with everything I've ever done or everyone I've ever met or anything like that. Although the early drafts were, they were really, uh, really, it was a really big book. And the, you know, the, uh, my editor kept saying, okay, we have to cut some of this back. We have to cut some of this back. And I eventually carved out, I think what are the most interesting stories, the most interesting relationships, the most interesting insights uh, of my life during that period. I mean, it starts when I'm born, but the, you know, my childhood is like sort of a short introduction. And then it really picks up when I go to, uh, to theater school and my career starts to take off. And it's kind of a look at not only what's happening in, in the gay community in Canada and with queer men and that kind of thing, but it's also a look at uh, how the arts changed in Canada, how that period of, um, intense wealth that Alberta had in the 70s and that prosperity that Canada was enjoying about how that gave birth to all kinds of different theaters and different theater professionals and uh, uh, a worldwide sense of the Canadian theater as being an actual force rather than a joke, which Canadian theater was pretty much prior to 1960. Mm-hmm. And um, so it brings us all the way up to present day, did you say, or into the no, 2000s? It ends at, um, it ends in the year 2000. In the year 2000. Okay, I wasn't sure way uh, the end of the AIDS crisis as we knew it. By that point, we're using retrovirals. People are living longer. People have stopped dying in the same way. So it seemed like a really good place to end the uh, to end the book and also to think about a sequel because I was of course, just going to ask another you another 21 years since then where yeah. a great many things have happened. Uh, but I didn't want to write the entire story. I mean, I, you know, even writing up to age 40. I sort of felt like I'm not old enough to do this. And then I thought, well, no, I'm 61. I probably am old enough to do this. Who knows how long it's going to last, but don't give the whole thing away. Save it for another volume. I would, I was going to say, because I know, you know, you and I were talking a little bit. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on the current kind of political situation. And maybe this is book two, but yeah, take it, take us through the, what book two might look like, I guess, with what's going on today. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of funnier because initially I thought of myself as uh, a, a fairly non-political artist, as lots of artists like to be, because if you get too political, then you start to alienate potential audience members and book buyers and that kind of thing. But as I've aged and I've seen what's happening with our form of government that we're being governed by the rich increasingly. And in fact, to the point where in can well, probably in anywhere in the world, you can't really get into politics if you're not a millionaire and have the money to do it. I just see a system that is getting so uh, perverted that um, it's, pushing the margins of poorer people farther and farther out. It's killing the middle class. 
and they're playing people against one another so that they're looking at minority groups and they're trying to make them enemies of one another. In the meantime, as we've learned in this current crisis that we're having, that our elderly people have just been put away and given to people who run private homes as cheaply as they possibly can to pay their shareholders, while tens of thousands of people are actually dying across Canada, and people don't seem nearly upset enough about it. I mean, when we're talking about the politics that went on, we talk about politics during the AIDS crisis, for example, and how so many politicians were willing to use that as a tool to further demonize queer people and marginalized people and keep them down. Uh, you know, I, I grew up being kind of cynical of politics, but now that I'm you know, I care for a neighbor of mine who is an elderly uh, lesbian in her mid 80s who has dementia, who was an only child, who has really no one else in the world. And she was just a friendly woman who talked to me in the elevator who who needed help with her dog one day. And I offered to help. And through that, we, we developed a friendship and I realized her situation and she's living alone and she's her dementia is getting worse. And there's so little there to help her. And there's so little there to help the people who are alone in the world that I really feel, even though our, our political system doesn't encourage it in any way, I think we really have to get back to that kind of community model that we dealt with when we were dealing with the HIV situation and the AIDS epidemic, where we organize and look out for one another because the government doesn't do those things anymore. And so when I'm, when I'm dealing with Shirley, I mean, again, I am I'm just about as enraged by how she's treated as I was by how people with HIV were treated uh, uh, during the AIDS epidemic. So I think the idea that that our politicians are going to take care of us or even help us is a really scary proposition because they aren't doing that. And I think if we look at now, for example, uh, there was a vote in the House of Commons yesterday where the NDP brought up the idea of making all LTC centers government run and not privately owned. And the liberals and the conservatives voted them down because as always now, our governments are privileging business and corporations over the needs of individuals and families. And I think that's very dangerous. We want you to feel good in your skin. And even with the ongoing pandemic, your health should never take a back seat. If you have any skin, hair, and nail health issues or concerns, Maple's dermatologist can see you in a matter of minutes. Maple is a credible virtual care platform that connects Canadians with over 1,500 general practitioners and specialists coast to coast. Dermatologists on Maple can help with a variety of skin concerns, including acne, rash, eczema, hair loss, nail health, and more. Download Maple in the App Store or Google Play Store or head to getmaple.ca backslash style to learn more. Feel good in your skin this summer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, talking about it's interesting that you talk about like the support that some people just don't have. I think in especially in this past year, realizing how important that community is, like whether it's a you know, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a, a parent that you can see just like how we need people. Right. Like yeah, we so need we people need to, to survive. We need, we need community. And we need to look over, look out for one another. And we, we need to be really aware of who our neighbors are, particularly when it comes to our seniors, because we are all seniors in waiting. So True. 
whatever is happening to them now is going to happen to us. And I think people are so short-sighted about that kind of thing that they're willing to close their eyes to a lot of what's going on. And I think we have to be a lot more proactive on every level, politically and personally, and in within the community as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that, you know, this word community has come up a lot throughout our conversations. And I feel one of what I always do, enjoyed was the pride parade. So I lived in New York city for a decade and I lived in the West village. So pride was, was that whole week, I think actually at one point it had spanned over a whole week. And I just remember feeling like such a sense of community during that time. And I think such a, there was such like a joy in the city. And I I know that we won't necessarily get the parade this year, but I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about like what pride means to you and, and share some of that. Well, it's interesting because I've been around since the beginning of the Pride celebrations. In fact, when I first came out, they didn't even exist. And uh, when they when they started originally, they were very small gatherings. I think the first one in Toronto was on one of the Toronto islands, and it was a few hundred people. And in Edmonton, when it started a few later, a few years later, it was a picnic that happened in the park. But then, as um, As the AIDS crisis grew, Pride changed radically. Pride became uh, very much a show of defiance. I mean, the whole idea, the whole parade started because we wanted to be recognized because people didn't see us. And so we went out there and we all marched together and it became more political and sort of at the in the late 90s, at the, the height of the AIDS crisis, I feel like the Pride uh, movement was at its strongest, that there was there was a real political will there, and there was a desire to change things, and there was a defiance, there was a, a, a kind of, fuck you, I'm here, you have to look at me, we are who we are, we don't need your approval to do anything we do. But then, you know, they started putting up uh, barriers between the street and the parade itself, and it got corporate sponsorship, and all the straight people started coming, which originally was really great. Originally, it was great to have our allies there and the people who loved us and the people who were willing to support us, by, but by the, you know, the beginning of the turn of the century, it had become kind of a place for straight people to come and get drunk and behave in whatever manner they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to sour on pride because it no longer was an act of defiance. It was a big corporate party. And also you age out of these things, particularly in the gay community, which um, doesn't really appreciate its aged and its senior members very much. And also eventually you get tired of all the screaming people in the crowds and the heat and the sweat and you stay home. But I think right now, because Pride was canceled last year because of uh, this pandemic and, and it will be something else this year, mostly online, I think. I think we have a really good opportunity here to re-examine what exactly does pride mean in this new century and why do we have it? If we are so accepted, if we are so free, and I don't believe we are. I mean, I think that's a, a very privileged attitude to have. I think that those of us who live in large cities or those of us who are predominantly white or those of us who live in a particular economic sphere can say, oh, it's great. Everything is good now. But there are 
kids growing up all over this country, let's not even talk about the wider world, but in more rural parts of this country and in less educated parts of this country who are still having as much trouble as gay kids did when I was coming out, for example. And then if you look at the rest of the world, there's still a lot of countries where being gay is illegal, where you can be killed for being gay, you can be imprisoned, you can have all kinds of horrible things done to you. So I, I hope that when we take this break now from the pride, the big party, we start looking at those things and start thinking about, okay, we changed things for ourselves. Now, how do we change them for other people in the world? And you can't go marching into a country uh, that's very repressive and say, okay, you've got to free all your homosexuals and lesbians and gay people and queer people and let them, let them free. It doesn't really work that way. So how can we exert pressure on those countries through our politicians, through economic sanctions, through various things that we can do to try to make things better for queer people, non-conforming people. It doesn't matter if you call yourself gay or trans or bi or pan or, or whatever it is, we are not straight. So how do the not straight people make things better for all the other not straight people in the world? And then how do we enlist the straight people to helping us make that happen? You know, and I think this is a good opportunity to have those conversations and ask those questions. Are there some organizations um, that you really love that are that are doing some of that work? Uh, there are various organizations. There's a Rainbow Railroad. You know, there's the 519 in Toronto. There are all kinds of uh, uh, the Metropolitan Community Church does sponsorships for gay, gay and uh, trans queer refugees from other countries. I mean, there are a lot of them all over the world and people should take it on themselves to seek those places out, to educate themselves on what's going on and to find out they can help if they want to help because all of those organizations are always looking for volunteers. They're looking for money. They're looking for support. And almost every community has at least one. Mm -hmm. No, thanks for, I think it's, you know, this past year is a good time for all of us, no matter what kind of groups we're in to reflect on what are we do, why are we doing what we've done in the past? And like, what, what could we do to change it for the future? And what does the future look like? And pride being one of those. Yeah. yeah, everything being one of those, but it's a crucial question. I mean, if we don't examine those questions after, as we enter our second year of lockdown, then what has this all been for? It's right. just been, you know, we can't just suspend everything and leave finally when this thing is over and it will be over. And as someone who's been through a pandemic, I want to, through an epidemic, I want to ensure people it will eventually end, even though it feels like it won't right now. And it will never end when you want it to. It ends in its own time and, and when the time is right for it to do it. But it will end. And how can we make things different? How can we make things different and better for ourselves, for people who are more economically depressed, for people who don't have the same rights as everyone else, for people who don't look like everyone else? How can we make the world a better, more tolerant, more accepting place for everyone? And, and I have to admit, some of the identity politics I see in the queer community, some of the anger I see uh, people expressing because someone doesn't treat them with the right uh, name them with the right pronoun or or recognize what their particular intrinsic state of their sexuality or something is you know the more um angry we are about that 
the less effective it is. I mean, education takes a long time and there are a great many people in the world and they don't all go to university and they aren't all, you know, humanities or art students. And there are a lot of people who don't understand these debates, let alone support them. So if we aren't welcoming to other people, if we aren't understanding of people's ignorance, if we aren't willing to uh, gently remind people that, you know, everybody has the same rights and that kind of thing, then I think that we stand the danger of alienating people. And, you know, the the, the horrible thing is, and, and I hate when I have to say this, but the truth is, the fate of the minority will always be dependent on the mood of the majority. Always. They have that's that That's a very power. good, that's so, going to be your quote. <laughs> okay, because I really feel that that we have to be aware that the majority has to be on our side or we have nothing going for us. And that doesn't mean we have to bow down to them or, or placate them. It means we have to be aware of their power and we have to ask them, find ways to enlist them to use that power for the larger cause of equality for everyone. It's not just for one particular group. You know, the whole thing is every minority is taught by our society, our consumer society, to believe that they are alone and they're isolated. But as a, as a minority, if we all get together, if every minority gets together, we are not a minority. We become a right. majority and we become right. an army and we can accomplish a lot. So I think that, that it's important to be recognized for who you are and what makes you unique, but it's also important to remember that you are a member of a community and that every member of a community has an obligation to work toward the betterment of not only that community, but every other community like them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we had um, Avery Francis on the podcast talking about racism and she, she didn't invent this concept, but the idea of calling in versus calling out. Yes. And, and, and I loved that. That was one of the first, when she introduced it to me anyway, um, I thought that that was a really interesting kind of way of saying, and I think applies to what you're saying as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I love kind of ending on on that in a way, but I do know you have some other things going on. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this web series, where we can find it and you and where we can get the book. Sure. Well, the book will be is uh, the book is available in uh, better bookstores everywhere. It can be ordered from from I mean, it can be ordered from the publisher. It can also be ordered from your local bookstore. You don't have to go to a conglomerate. You don't have to go to a big corporation, although if you want to, it is available there as well. And uh, I have a web series I do with a friend of mine. I did my master's at the University of Toronto about seven years ago, and I was the oldest person in the class. And the youngest person in the class was a young straight guy. And we got on like a house on fire and he became one of my best friends. And, and I mentor him quite a lot, as I did with a number of the people I went to school with. But uh, we, we love movies. I love showing him old 20th century movies that he hasn't seen before classics, particularly with a queer bent that I think he should be able to see. And we've parlayed that into a series called Old Movies for Young People, where we feature uh, some of the most interesting movies from the 20th century, and then actually dissect them from a contemporary point of view. And our second season uh, just started in, in uh, April, we launched, and we've still got a few episodes left to go. So it's called Old Movies for Young People. It's on YouTube, it's on Instagram, it's on Twitter, it's on all the platforms. 
And if you want to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter at, as Brad Fraser, and I'm on Facebook as Brad Fraser. And uh, you can find me on any of those platforms because I'm very vocal and very talkative, and I generate a lot of content for people to look at, to read, to watch, whatever it is. Because it's mostly, you know, I treat the... Um, the social platforms, when I got on Facebook initially, I was kind of like, what am I going to do with this? And I realized this gives people an opportunity into my creative process that they may not know about. Maybe that will help them appreciate the art more if they know what's going on. And so I have thousands of followers and I often talk about what I'm writing or what I'm uh, rehearsing or what I'm directing and, and let give people insights into why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, and hopefully generate interest in coming to see the project. But I'm also highly political. I am very outspoken in my uh, in my political beliefs in what needs to happen and in what's happening with the current government. And the people who are there really enjoy that. And some people don't enjoy that so much. And if that's the case, then follow old movies for young people on YouTube or uh, Instagram, and you'll get it without <laughs> the politics. There you go. I love it. Something for everyone, right? Exactly. Well, Thank you, Brad, so much for being here with us today. We've so enjoyed the conversation and looking forward to continue the conversation on your platforms, on Style Canada. Um, and hopefully we'll get to see you in person soon. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for tuning into this conversation. We will have a brand new one on a brand new topic every Monday. If you were intrigued by anything in our conversation, we encourage you to talk about it. Tell a friend, post on social media, Take action in your very own way. Subscribe to get the newest episode at your fingertips as soon as it drops. Until next time, check out Style Canada, a disruptor in the media for its community of inquisitive style seekers. You can find us at style.ca or on social media. Just like this podcast, Style Canada is not just about style. It's about living a lifestyle that leaves people open to evolution and opportunity. This episode was hosted by Elise Gasparino, produced and edited by Alia Ballas. The music credit goes to Raspberry Music and was brought to you by Style Canada.